0: Hello, and welcome to the Stoutman Podcast.
1: I'm Colton Guffey, and I'm here with Matt Huff. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well, man. It's good to be back for episode number two.
0: It really is. I thoroughly enjoyed um, the last episode. I mean, the recording of it. Us chatting and talking uh, just had a great time. Um, one thing though, that I noticed, uh, I re-listened to it, not re-listened to it. I listened to it obviously, um, (laughs) for the first time. Uh, and I noticed something. I noticed that I was so conscious about my ums and maybe a stutter here that I was taking a lot of long pauses. So this week I vowed not to
1: Take long pauses, okay? (laughs) I genuinely wondered what was happening just then. (laughs) Good. So that's the last one, okay? Last one. (laughs) Everything else is going to fly.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking over each other, and it's going to be just a madhouse. (laughs) Yeah, man. So um, how was your week since last time we spoke?
1: It was good. We are... We are gearing up for the school year. Uh, we are we started pre-planning this week. And as everybody listening is aware, I- any project that you're undertaking is going to be complicated with questions of COVID and whatever else. But we are optimistic and excited. And, you know, I just, a- every year of teaching, I, for, I don't know if it's, it's probably true for you. I don't know, but it's certainly true for me that you get those same kind of butterflies and feelings of uh, eagerness and just to be back in the classroom. So it's been a good week.
0: Yeah, I definitely have those. I don't know if I told you this, but um, so school ended last last year and um, a couple weeks into the summer and even the last couple weeks of school, um, Holly, which is my wife, uh, was telling me that I was kicking a lot and moaning in my sleep and I didn't remember any of that. Um, turns out I was having night terrors, grown oh, man, gosh. 34 years old, having night terrors, uh, had no clue what that was, but I think just, you know, that that last year, the end of last year was so stressful uh, with COVID and all, and it's one of those things where I didn't realize how stressed I was until apparently I was kickboxing uh, whilst I slept. Um, but I knew that it was night terrors and not nightmares because I didn't remember any of it. So nightmares apparently happen during REM sleep when you're dreaming because you wake up and you remember them. Night terrors are something where you don't realize what's going on until somebody wakes you up. So luckily there weren't any like sleepwalking. Uh, but there was one night where I jumped out of bed and ran towards the door like our, you know, bedroom door and Holly wakes up freaking out thinking that I've, you know, there's somebody in the house that I heard something. Nope. I woke up when, and I was standing straight up like in a panic and I'm like, well, what am I doing? She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what am I doing? You know? And we just kept going. Yeah. Back. <laughs> um, Gracious. Turns out, turns out everything was fine except for that I was having night terrors, but those seemed to stop. Um shortly after that. So I guess the stress of school kind of ended, but I'm, uh, ready for those to, to get started up again.
1: <laughs> <for this laughs> tis the season. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. Um, it's going to be good. It's gonna be a good year for both of us, for all of us. Yeah.
0: yeah. I am excited. We, um, uh, I am over the curriculum order for our school and, uh, just made that last week. And, uh, You know, that's, um, that's something that I enjoy doing, but I will say, I don't know why I volunteer to do something that is so meticulous and deals with so many numbers because that is not my forte. (laughs) So I'm like, I love curriculum, but everything in life, even if you love it, there's still some part of it that is just a grind. And so, uh, you know, that kind of goes back to our last week's episode about, Theodore Roosevelt and the Strenuous Life. Um Segway.
1: Yeah. Segue.
0: Yeah. There we go. It, hey, it's better than an awkward pause.
1: Right? No, that was actually a beautiful segue. So yeah. so go ahead and take that on ramp.
0: And now I don't know what to say. You've talked oh, you <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, the the idea of everything. I mean, if you completely spend your life trying to find something that you love and enjoy, but it's just easy, um, there's everything has aspects to it that are not fun. Um, and so you just got to do it um, and you got to put forth a lot of work. And that's something that sadly I learned later in life, but thankfully I learned it at all. Uh, so the Lord was right, has been very gracious.
1: Right. The, the, yeah. the deeper is uh, like the greater desiring, the greater reward, you know, what Jesus talks about, like the strenuous yeah. life is a life of trial and uh, difficulty and, you know, the higher calling, but it's richer and deeper, uh, the more lasting satisfaction.
0: Excuse me. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so like food. If you eat cheeseburgers all of the time, you get that, you know, dopamine hit where you're just stopping by fast food. It's so good. Um, but ultimately, you're going to feel like garbage, and your body's right. going to look like garbage. But if you eat healthy things and things that actually are good for you and meant for you to eat, um, usually uh, you're going to feel better, and you're going to have a little bit longer life uh, than if you just eat garbage. So um, it's funny how truths are truths everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not
0: just a little here, <laughs> not just a little there. They're they're uh, they're they're all they're, they're true. They, they are. How
1: truths are true.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Um, oh gosh.
1: <laughs> so true.
0: So there was a quote on the, um, that, uh, so in case you guys don't know, we do have an Instagram, um, that, uh, we have. It's a Stoutman podcast. So if you're listening and you don't follow us, please follow us. Um, just so you can get updates or little tidbits of, um, I guess, inspiration, motivation, whatever. But there was one on our um, Instagram this past week, and it was from Theodore Roosevelt. And it says, uh, never throughout history has a man who lived a life of ease left a name worth remembering. Uh, And that's just so good.
1: That's good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: Not that we as Christians should be focused on our names being remembered. That's not the point, but the idea of those names that we do remember, uh, no matter the field in which we're in, um, no one that we remember ever left, a um, or led a life of ease. And so I thought that that was, um, pretty great. Yeah. So, but yeah. So, uh, speaking of social media, we do have a Facebook page as well. Um, it's just Stoutman, so look us up there, and feel free to comment um, about what you liked, maybe what you didn't like. Um, don't be mean, uh, but uh, you know we're <laughs> we're all for um, constructive criticism and all of that. But also, just want to hear um, if these resonate with you. And uh, if you learned anything or if you want to add anything to the discussion, so please join us there um, or Instagram. Uh, and I'm sure that we'll have more later on. Definitely. Um,
1: so yeah, yeah. It's part of the, it's part of community building. I think, you know, Absolutely, discovering, yeah. discovering people who are like-minded is one of the greatest it really, joys.
0: It really is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of our story. Um, like we, Connected the first night that we hung out, yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, that's I don't even know how many years ago, but it I guess two thousand six is that right? Mm-hmm. So 14, yeah. fourteen years now. Yep. Um, yeah, still going strong. Um, so yeah, we like to meet people that um, think like us. We also like to meet people that don't think like us. That's how we grow too. But
1: right. Um, but value deeper deeper magic to use lewis's words yeah. value the deeper things yeah yeah agreed
0: so join us um and yeah so again this is episode 2 last week we um discussed the well in the first half we discussed what the podcast was why we're even here you know what is a stoutman um and basically it's just someone who lives a stout life, uh, one not of ease, um, but one who seeks, I guess, to see the true, the good, and the beautiful um, of the Creator in His creation, um, while never putting the creation above the Creator, but glorifying God um, and our Lord Jesus Christ by enjoying what He has given us and looking for the best, looking for the true, the good, and appreciating the beauty of which we have. And we believe that those things are very objective, you know? That's right. um, You know, there is some subjectivity to beauty in a small sense, um, but ultimately there is an objective beauty, um, and obviously truth and goodness and... Um, you know, we don't come on here to uh, say that we figured it all out. We come on here to discuss it and try to grow ourselves. Um, I had mentioned Marcus Aurelius's meditations and about how he wrote that, not with the intention of publishing his work, but it was his own personal meditations and personal journals, um, which he didn't call it meditations, but just the idea of when he writes the second person singular, uh, you well, I guess it could be singular or plural, Um, he's referring to himself, you know, and reminding himself of these deep truths that he's learned. And so, that's one of the things that we want to do here, is to remind ourselves, but also to share what the Lord has blessed us with. Um, Knowledge and wisdom and virtue, all of that. So, uh, yeah. This week, I'm pretty excited because we are looking at... A lovely lady's short story. Um, And since we are Southern folk, uh, Matt, you're from Georgia. I'm from South Carolina. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, a short story by Flannery O'Connor, which I'm... Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, Flannery O'Connor.
0: So back whenever, uh, because you and I went to college together and then um, you moved off to go to, um, grad school. And I stayed in that town for a little while. And I was a part of a philosophy club called the burden baby. Um, and the, uh, the burden baby was actually, um, it took place because of a gentleman named Joffrey who owned a bookstore, a used bookstore called the silver chair. And he had shirts made up And at this time, I didn't know who Flannery O'Connor was, really. I had heard her name, but didn't really know her. But her face was the only uh, graphic on the front of the shirt. And uh, people were all the time saying, Hey, is that your girlfriend? You know, like, yeah, I put a picture of my girlfriend on my shirt. And she's, (laughs) you know, 50 years old. Um, But uh, that was one of my favorite shirts for a long time. And uh, the fact that this used bookstore could pick one graphic to put on their shirt and they chose Flannery O'Connor, just her face, and uh, I think that speaks volumes to, um, to how the owner of the bookstore Joffrey uh, felt about her. So
1: um, major shout very- out to Joffrey too, if he's if he's listening, Joffrey, we love you, and oh, yeah. all of your, and all of your work, all of the stu- all the stuff that you're doing. I think he's in right. Idaho now.
0: Uh, yeah, I think he goes to, uh, is it Doug Wilson's church? Is that right? I
1: think so. I think, yeah. And he works for Kepler and he's doing a lot of cool stuff.
0: Yes. Yes. And I mean, he seems to always be doing cool stuff.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to, let's go ahead and plug him. He might not ever listen to this, but I'm going to plug him anyway. Joffrey the giant, I think is his handle on all of the social medias. So he, he deserves to be followed. You owe yourself
0: absolutely the pleasure
1: the pleasure of his uh, posted content
0: yeah and his moniker is not ironic he
1: is a giant he is a giant he is he is a a big man he is a stout brazilian individual
0: <laughs> brazilian monster right <laughs> oh um, man it's their version of godzilla just a bearded man <laughs> is, is that what it is yeah yeah he's <laughs> a uh, a legend of of your, um, did I say your? I meant to say lore. Wait, legend of lore. Does that make sense? Are you,
1: I, I, we're just gonna roll with it.
0: He's both of those.
1: <laughs> I, I think the days of your is a thing, so yes, I think you might have been all right.
0: Yeah, if I would just had confidence and not second guess myself, we would have been fine. Um, <laughs> yeah uh check them out and uh now that we're done dude crushing on um somebody i guess we can uh mosey on out of that one
1: (laughs) i think i think it's a good practice to to build up other stout men and their projects Uh, i i'm gonna i'm gonna exonerate what we just did
0: yeah 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 i like that thank you yeah yeah so anyway long pauses let's not do those um so, yeah, Flannery O'Connor, obviously a man that we respect, um, thought a lot of her. And I know that, Matt, you um, respect her a lot. Um, and I do not have as much knowledge as you do of her. And I have not read as much of her as you have. Um, so I will leave this up to you. But I have a question for you. And that was who was Flannery O'Connor? Oh,
1: gosh. Uh, Okay, so first of all, reading Flannery O'Connor is a very recent development in my life, Um, like the last last six to 12 months. Uh, Well, I I read a short story of hers in college, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and that's the one that gets anthologized a lot is one of her. Yeah, I was going to say, I
0: think a lot of people if they've read anything by her or recognition yeah. her name, probably from that one. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. And it's a great story. Um, so I, I read that in college and I remember learning about, you know, I was an English major. So I remember learning about her in the context of American literature, you know, in general. And, and I, I remember learning sort of the key bullet points of her life that she was, she was a Southern writer. She is practically a master of the form of the short story. Um, I think she and Fitzgerald are two of the finest craftsmen in American literature, period. Um, wow. But especially in their short stories. Uh, so, and she was, she was a Catholic writer. She is sometimes uh, linked in with Southern Gothic literature. So in college, I learned, I learned the basics, basically, you know, those sorts of things about it. And then kind of moved on to the next thing. Then, Just to,
0: to point out, when you say Catholic writer, I think when you hear the term Catholic um, or even Christian in America, it uh, it kind of lends itself to, well, who isn't um, or who wasn't. Um, but she was true to her Catholic faith. Yeah. That, like that played a very big role, right? Right.
1: Right. So, yeah. And I would actually use Fitzgerald as an example here. So F. Scott Fitzgerald was Catholic. But his project, I I would argue that his project as a writer was not laid on the altar of his Catholic faith. There are are some who might disagree with that, but I, I don't think he was interested per se in incarnating his faith or the roots of his faith. I don't even know, you know, Fitzgerald's faith is a bit of a difficult topic because it's kind of um, you could make arguments here or there about it. Whereas O'Connor, it is inescapable. And it is, you are misreading O'Connor if you are drifting from her faith. Um, So I think her, her faith is so central to her mission that I don't know if you can talk about her fiction without talking about it not to say that her stories can be reduced at all to you know something like a mere moralism she's not being didactic she's not a sunday school teacher far from it um the the second you read o'connor you recognize she's not a a dainty polite sunday school teacher Mm -hmm. um but she is very much um working out in fiction her deep, deeply held religious convictions in a way that I don't know if I would attribute that to somebody like Fitzgerald or um, you know or certainly anybody contemporary with her like uh, like Salinger or Hemingway or anybody. Oh yeah um, but so anyway, so i I was exposed to her in college, and i I remember thinking it was fine, and then I read... The Life You Save May Be Your Own on a recommendation, which is another short story of hers. And that one really threw me. I thought, what is going, you know, a a pretty standard response to reading O'Connor, which is what on earth? It's it's bizarre and obscure and just so deep that you just a passing reading is really really hard to have with o'connor and walk away from it intact you know yeah oh yeah so at that point at that point i thought i don't know man i it's I, she might not be for me then um Cersei institute did they uh david kern over at Cersei did a six-week study of o'connor and I had heard enough people that I respected in my life talk so highly of her. I was like, okay, there's something, you know, I'm older now. There might be something here that I missed when I was, you know, in my early 20s that now I might be able to see. So I took that class. It was a six-week study of Mm -hmm. O'Connor. And just to
0: clarify, there were a lot of things you missed in your early 20s. Yes, yes. There are a ton of things that we miss in our early 20s. So those you, I'd venture, like I'd podcast. venture to
1: say, almost everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I will agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. And ten years from now, I'll say the same thing about my thirties. So, uh, yeah, we will so hate the beauty
0: this podcast in in ten years. Yeah. <laughs> so listen now, folks, before it gets yeah, to <laughs> Yeah, that's
1: right. Enjoy <laughs> it while it's hot. Um, so anyway, but that. So I bought her collective works, uh, her short stories. And, um, I read the ones that were being studied in this class. And as I was reading those, I went on to read almost all of them. Um, and I, it was a very quick and very deep falling in love. Um, she just, it's one of few things I've read that just knocked me off my seat. You know, it just completely blew me away how um magnificent her writing is uh, so that's that's how i got here it was, it was slow at the beginning of just a slight exposure to her and then a very sudden and very rich um reading of her fiction
0: excellent so i mean we we've kind of learned a little bit about your relationship there with her you know work and which you you Talked about how she um, is mostly a short story writer. I think she only has two novels, right? Right, right. And everything else is is short story. So to read all of her work would would not take that long, um, yeah. uh, which is a good thing and a sad thing all at once, you know. Um, but what she did write and what we do have um, is something that we should should you know realize is very very high quality, um, there. So let me ask another question then,
1: um, (laughs) the one I didn't (laughs) answer.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, if you want to give us a little bit more, that would be helpful. Um, and then the, the question that I'm going to ask afterwards. So if you want to just kind of bleed into that is why read her, um, more than just your own, you know, she impacted my life, but, but who she was and and why spend time digging into her work?
1: Uh, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she died when she was thirty nine. So she, her life is one of those examples that we have in literature of the oh, if only she had lived longer. What you know, the the trajectory that she was on. Imagine so what my, she. Written. Um, so my fifty year old comment was
0: way off earlier.
1: Well, yeah, well. Yeah. You know, the well not not so much. Not so much because um she died of lupus and yeah. the lupus she had really took a toll on her health where she yeah. looked really um devastated by her illness. Uh, she mean, had to walk proves, on crutches for a long time. Yeah. So so it wore on her big time.
0: And that proves Dr. House wrong that it's never
1: lupus. Oh, I wish I knew that reference. I have not seen House.
0: Oh man, I, but, I, but it, I'm sure
1: I'm sure you're right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, not this time, because it was. So okay. Anyway,
1: so so Flannery O'Connor she was born in Savannah, um, and to a a deeply Catholic family, um, and then I think I think maybe in her teenage years moved to Atlanta, um, and then she went to Iowa and to New York at different points in her life to do writers workshops and and stuff like that where she learned her craft um, from other writers and so on. And and the story that's told when she went to Iowa and to New York is that her accent was uh, practically impenetrable. Just people could not, because it was just a, such a deep Southern accent. Uh, But she eventually moved to Milledgeville and that's kind of the famous environment for a lot of her, because that's where most of her stories were written is she lived on this farm, um, called Andalusia in Milledgeville, Georgia. It's still there, you can tour it. And she lived there with her mom. Uh, She never married. Um, Her dad passed away from lupus as well when she was a kid. And she lived with her mom and she was, when she contracted lupus, it was was an illness she had for years and it took a toll on her. Um, And she, uh, as a result of that, became very driven with her craft where she wrote furiously she would she would step out of bed and then immediately into her chair at her typewriter and type um and and so um she lived she lived with all these peacocks so if you buy her books sometimes you'll see peacocks on the cover because she had a ton of them on her farm and she loved them but but her so and she died when she was 39 so she had a, a short life but her writing was she had this very powerful season of about 10 years 10 to 12 years of writing um uh, she wrote two novels um so there was a third one she was working on that uh she died before she could finish and i believe somebody is trying to finish it or or put it together from her notes or something um and i think she has something like 31 short stories um her her stories they're quite bizarre and quite different but they're kind of linked by this. You can see you can see a, a sort of stream underneath them where O'Connor was interested in the kind of grace of God that intrudes into a sinner's life um violently. And, and so her short stories feature these kind of grotesque or bizarre acts of violence. But those vi those acts Typically, in, in a typical O'Connor story, those acts of violence jolt the character out of his or her depravity or perversity or whatever into an opportunity for redemption. And so that's yeah. where you see her her theological convictions at work, where to her, uh, she wrote in her prayer journal once, she said, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, Lord, give me the grace Uh, Give give me the courage to stand the pain to get the grace where Hmm. she, she saw the grace of God as something that sinners don't want and the arrogant and the prideful don't want. Um, Yet those whom God will save by grace, he will do so by destroying their sinfulness that that they will be um, violently ripped away from a life of sin by the grace of God. Uh, And so that theme of anybody who's reading O'Connor, I would say, I would say, look for the occasions of dark grace to just come like a bolt of lightning and look at how it impacts the characters in the story.
0: And that's one thing that um, she's known for as well as the physical um, attributes of the characters that she writes about. She's always describing um, just the physicality and usually a deformity. Um, maybe not a major one, you know, it's not like Phantom of the Opera, but, but just something like acne, um, you know, a gimp leg, you know, something like that, which, um, you know, is, is pretty common in literature for, for an evil person to have this. But, um, in her stories, it's not always the evil person. Sometimes it's the person who is
1: God's hand or God's vehicle to give that grace. Right. And, and the, this part of the grotesque, you know, the idea of the Southern Gothic literature that she gets lumped into is that she creates these characters who are, are, as you said, just they're deformed or they're um, they are a sort of carnival character. Um, And we, the reader look at that and say, how, how odd and different from me, this person is. And yet her whole point is to say, no, that that pales that whatever grotesque element of that character puts you off, whatever is ugly about that character pales in comparison to what you are actually like Mm. at the at the level of the soul. And that's where the discomfort in reading O'Connor comes is when you when you finally realize that you are that man. You know, it's like what, what Nathan tells David. And he's like, you're the man. Oh, yeah. You're the man I'm telling. That's what mm-hmm. O'Connor does. Where she says, you are the racist grandmother. You are the deformed, arrogant college student. You are the, um, as we'll read in Revelation, the, the overweight, um, narrow-minded, bigoted woman who's judging everybody in the waiting room is is you and me. Um mm-hmm. at, at our, in our heart, in our flesh, and we need to be knocked out of our pride so that we can be humbled so that we can receive grace. Yeah.
0: Well, I can't think of a better cliffhanger than that for us to take a break. And, um, when we come back, we will be looking at Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation. So we'll see you in just a bit. Okay, welcome back. We are looking at Revelation, the short story by Flannery O'Connor, uh, which is in her short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, uh, which is also a good short story, but that's not what we're here to talk about right now. We're talking about Revelation, um, which I had not read uh, before we decided to read it for this um, episode, and I got to tell you, I'm really glad that, um, we decided on this one because I didn't know the good thing about her stories that I've learned, uh, just from reading the several that I have is, you know, I'm a, I'm a film thinker. Like I, every time I read a good story, I think, man, how could, how could that be made into a good short film or 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 made into a one-act play or something like that. And as I'm reading this, I realize that a lot of her stories would be terrible uh, brought to the screen because the action in them is not cinematic at all. I mean, there's some, but ultimately the reading and getting to know these characters is really where the heart of this is at. Um, and pardon me if I'm using a preposition I know. <laughs> um, but it's just it's such a cool idea because they're just several people sitting in a waiting room and that's the bulk of the story but yet the story is so riveting because we get to right. know the characters so well in a way that right. films not represent
1: right so, so much of the power of her stories is in her language, mm-hmm. uh, the the way in which she can weave a story together, and the the way her language works on the reader is so, um, so effective and so intricate that I I think that's a lot of where the beauty is. Although, so you say it wouldn't translate to film all that well. Although I would love to see somebody try to do it because I think somebody who appreciated O'Connor and somebody who could see her and, and who could read her well might be able to do something interesting with film. like how how would you capture the inner prejudices of a woman beyond just the dialogue? You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I I wonder if there could be ways of putting that on a camera that, like a a standard film, you know, it, it might look boring. But I wonder if somebody could somehow translate a lot of that interior reality through particular choices as a director or something. It's it maybe that could be your next project. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just gave you I just gave you homework.
0: <laughs> oh man, come on. Uh, well, let's not expect that anytime soon. Just simply, you know, because school's starting back.
1: Right. Um, I'm, I'm just saying I would love it if somebody did that. That would be, if yeah. somebody did that well, it'd be awesome.
0: Someone other than James Franco, right?
1: Oh, that's a, that's another conversation.
0: <laughs> well, we can talk a little bit about that at our next short story. Cause it is there a fault. In the um, and I actually,
1: I, for the record, I didn't mind. I So I, his, his adaptation of As I Lay Dying, I didn't mind.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm just putting that out there. The guy who played Cash. Um, was an incredible choice, so I'm I'm just gonna plug cool. that, Good. even Good. though Good. Faulkner is in many ways unfilmable,
0: yeah, almost unreadable, <laughs> <laughs> which is
1: that, that, that's a big deal when you're a novelist. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I say that jokingly, but um, yeah, but we'll uh, I mean he's a Southern Gothic too, so it, right. it's not weird to bring him up here, but um, yeah, he uh. I've read The Sound and the Fury, I think, three times now. And um, still, uh, if you ask me questions about it, um, I'm not going to have an answer, which is good. Uh, And if I'm not mistaken, um, someone said uh, to Faulkner, they read his, I mean, I'm paraphrasing this, but they said, I've read your um, story uh, like 10 times, um, and I still don't get it. What should I do? And he says, read it again.
1: It's a great answer. Uh,
0: Yeah. So good. Anyway, back to Flannery O'Connor. Revelation. We um, we find ourselves in a doctor's waiting room.
1: Okay. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, um, very it's like small. This old,
1: those old trailers in a world.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so we find ourselves in a doctor's waiting room with a um, this group of from the outside looking in, pretty standard characters, right? Just normal folks, if you're just from the outside looking in, right. um, peering through the window. Um, and the first person we see is a Mrs. Turpin, who uh, seems to be a bit overweight. Um, and by seems to be, I mean she is overweight. Right. Um uh, and she even responds to this or makes note of this when, whenever she is trying to find a seat. And, um, well, I'll let you kind of take over from there. So she walks in. She's trying to find a seat in the doctor's office with her husband. Um, and Claude. Claude's his name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, y- you want me to take it over? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So Mrs. Turpin is our main character here and Ruby Turpin and she and Claude are visiting the doctor because Claude has something on his leg. Um, A cow kicked him. I think something happened with Mr. Turpin. And so they're, they're in the doctor's office. And as you said, about 90% of the plot of the story is the dialogue and the internal sort of thought process of Mrs. Turpin and those who are in the waiting room. And there are, there's, and Mrs. Turpin's are, we're behind her eyes. She's our perspective. So there are all sorts of people in the waiting room that we come to know through her sizing them up. Um, yeah. And so there are African Americans in there. There are children in there. There is what she calls white trash in there. Um, and Mrs. Turpin, uh, she she says if there's one thing I am it's grateful, mm-hmm. and uh, which is just a great line because it sounds so pious and upright. Yep. But as you hear from her throughout the story, her gratitude that she's so proud of is a gratitude to God for making her better than everybody else. Yep. Um, where she and her she recognizes that she's not perfect. She says, she knows that she's overweight she says, I need to reduce. I wish yeah. I could reduce, which is such a loaded, you know, yeah. she needs to reduce in weight, but she also needs to reduce in her ego. In her um, <laughs> right. And her, right. Um, so the the first chunk of the story or so on is just her talking to those in the waiting room and just really moving toward this pharisaical kind of, thank you, Jesus, for making me white. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Jesus, for not making me white trash. You know, know, I'm I'm so thank you for making me thankful. (laughs) Thank you for making me so humble, you know, that sort of thing. And I I would I can't imagine anybody reading this story that doesn't just hate her (laughs) because she's so just arrogant and tone deaf to those around her and her prejudices are just so thick and just dripping all over her.
0: Well, the very first thing she does is when she comes in, um, she's looking for a chair and, um, Oh, Connor says that, uh, um, basically the, you know, Doctor's waiting room, which is very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered. And Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence Um, in such a beautiful way. um, She's talking about the physical size, uh, but also we see later on that uh, Mrs. Turpin herself sees the room as small because she's in it. Um, And so her physical size is making her find a seat that is acceptable to her um in her you know obesity and uh the first thing she sees is a blonde child in a uh dirty blue romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady and so right first thing she does when she walks in is she's judging the room which i'll be honest even though you say when you read this you should just hate her i do but i also notice myself in those situations sometimes Right. Um, Where it's like, okay, dude, why are you like, tell your stupid bratty kid to move over. Right. You shouldn't be picking up a whole couch when there's a lady here. And so as much as I hate her, um, I see a lot of myself there, which as we talked about in the first half is a lot of what flannery o'connor does
1: right Um, i think i think it it is a it is a good discipline to learn how to get there quickly in a in an o'connor story um because i think if you're reading her right you you have to get there at some point and recognize that what o'connor is saying about ruby turpin she's saying about you and me um but and And, and, right and and all fallen humans but i think there's just something so um powerful about her her description and her unraveling of the story where you just want to not identify with this woman because it's just her language is so harsh and maybe that's something we could talk about at some point cuz o'connor is kind of under the microscope now for her use of the n word and stuff like that but and that's evident in in the story where mrs turpin is just um her pretensions are so uh, annoying is a small word, but that's the one I'm going to use because it just is so difficult to read. It is. But um, I'm with you. I'm with you. Cause there, how many times have we either known people or been the person who makes a room smaller by our presence? You know what I mean? You, you kind of announce yourself into a room and you make every conversation about yourself and I just, it's us, we, we can do that. We have such a bloated view of ourselves that every room we're in is smaller once we go inside it because of how big we feel we have to be, or how much we try to absorb the, the life of the occasion.
0: And there's times where that's my goal. It's not even that it just happens, but it's like, I'm me. And I want to be seen as big, as large. Right, right. Um, You know, I, I, I find that myself. I'm, you know, being an only child in one sense. Uh, you know, the way that I was raised, I lived with my single mother, and I was an only child. Um, I had brothers, um, a step brother and a half brother, but I only saw them on the weekends, um, or every other weekend, and then I had another brother I didn't know about, (laughs) but that's a different story. That's another Um, story. (laughs) (laughs) So um, for me, I think the idea of the, the, the center of attention, the limelight has always been a struggle. Um, And just to see her evaluating everyone in this room, as soon as she walks in, as soon as she sits down, it's, it's commonplace for the first thing that she thinks about, is how they're not paying tribute to her in some way, right? Or they're not doing what she thinks is the good and right thing to do. um, Without any knowledge of them, without any knowledge of their situation, without even thinking my first, second, them first, um, she goes straight in with, this kid should, uh, his mother should have told him to move. Right. Uh, and uh, I think a waiting room is a perfect place for that because it doesn't have to be the waiting room. It could be in line at Food Lion or Kroger or wherever.
1: And why, your- why do you think, why do you think, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, why you know, do you, you know, why do you think, because you're right, the kinds of conversations that O'Connor is having Mrs. Turpin have with those that she sees around her could happen at, a grocery store, or at a park, or a bank, or something. Yet this whole story, most of the story, takes place in a waiting room. Do you think there's significance to that?
0: Well, I think one, um, it's a place where you are forced to sit. Whenever you are there for an a, for an appointment, where I don't know if you've ever been in the ER or any kind of doctor's office where there's something wrong, um, everyone thinks that they're most important issue. Yes. Their issue yes. Is is so bad that they need to be seen first. Um, my pastor made this joke a couple weeks ago. He said, "Do you know the difference between major sur- surgery and minor surgery? Major surgery is when I'm having surgery. Minor surgery is when you're having surgery." <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> um, man. That's so true, though. That's so good.
0: Yeah, it really is. Um, and so I think that a waiting room is, a, especially at a doctor's office where there is ailment involved, I think that this really shows one of those important parts of life that everyone deals with is, um, you know, you have high blood pressure. So you go to the ER um, and you're there for two hours and you're like, I could have died by now, you know, And it's <laughs> like, well, uh, what about the guy that came in on the gurney uh, in cardiac arrest? Right. You don't think that he need, you know. And so it doesn't even have to be that, I guess, big of a difference um, or that exaggerated, but it um, it's just something that we all experience, that idea right. of I'm in pain or my husband's in pain and we have to sit among these people that we don't know. And,
1: and who are in less need than yeah. me or who are in my way. Well, it's mm-hmm. either like the kid in the chair, like you move over, you're in the way, you're you're not where you ought to be, according to my paradigm.
0: Yeah, and she had no regard for um, if it was the kid who was sick or the mom. You know? Right. No regard. If this story right. were to be written today, I think it would be written um, inside of a Starbucks line whenever the main person is already late to work, yet they decide to come into Starbucks on their way to work.
1: Right. You know, what's interesting though, you you know, what's interesting about doctor's office though, is that it is proof that everybody is, um, mortal and everybody is imperfect. Yeah. You know what what I mean? Like there is no need for a waiting room for a doctor's office. If the Mrs. Turpins of the world are perfect or Mm -hmm. immortal but she's not, she's, she's obviously she's there for her husband, but she herself mentioned she's overweight. She's not perfect. Um, She's grateful, (laughs) but, but she's not, (laughs) she's not perfect and she's not immortal that your bodies get sick, your bodies fall apart. And I think that's just another O'Connor means of saying that the, the physical is proof of a spiritual reality the you know our physical bodies and and how they decay and how they can be grotesque or bizarre or uh impaired or scarred uh, Mm -hmm. all these different tropes that she uses prove a spiritual condition and that interplay between the physical and the spiritual is is that's o'connor's sweet spot
0: yeah agreed at least from what i've you know read it's it's You know, reading this short story um, just really hits home and not in a good way um, or a way that I'm sitting here going, oh, man, I'm, you know, thank you for making me grateful. It's um, it's O'Connor coming through the page, doing exactly what her characters are doing to the main character. But it's happening to me Um, is that conviction or revelation (laughs) that I'm having. Right. um, Where, if I can connect to the main character/slash villain of the tale, (laughs) there's, there's room for growth, and um, right, which is great. So, she um, we see in the story that she finally does grab a seat, and like you said, she says, um, you know, I need to reduce, uh, which again, as you said, was just a perfect um thing one thing that i noticed about her in her um in o'connor's writing of mrs turpin is every like she notices everything yes and she describes the hair she describes every shirt color but she also makes a very big point about saying that she without anyone noticing looks at the shoes yes and this is a big thing because shoes really do tell a lot about a person. Um, you know, people who are a little higher class are going to have nicer shoes. People who are a little lower class are going to have, I guess, uh, uh, cheaper shoes. <laughs> um, this is interesting that she notices all of that.
1: Right. And... and yeah and you have to look down on us on a person in order to do that
0: yes good point
1: there's a there's a looking down there's like a sneering there's a subtlety to it where she does it without anybody noticing yeah um where she looks down as you said the state of their feet um versus christ's example which is you know serving and you know Kneeling to, to wash the feet, feet and look up at the individual, you know, she looks down on them.
0: Yeah. Um, saying things like, next to the ugly girl was a child still in exactly the same position, you know. Right. Um, just the way she's referring to these people based solely on the outward appearance, even though she's a fat lady um, who knows that being fat's not good. Right. Um, she still goes in to say, next the ugly girl, was the child. Uh, oh, right. excuse me, next to the
1: ugly girl, uh, you know, and it was the yeah. child. Uh, at the end of that paragraph, it, it says exactly what you would have expected her to have on. There's just yeah. this sneering sort of, oh, of course. That's typical of people of their class or of their situation.
0: Yeah. So whenever we go over to... Um, It's on the next page, um, which if you don't have the book, that's fine. But basically after she goes through and she's evaluating all of these people um, based on her standard, which I think is very important. She claims it's God's standard, but it's her standard. Right. Um, She goes into um, – next to the child's mother was a redheaded youngish woman reading one of the magazines and working out a piece of chewing gum. Um, hell for leather, as Claude would say. Mrs. Turpin could not see the woman's feet. She was not white trash, just common. Sometimes, Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. The bottom of the heap were most colored people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Uh, then The next them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. That above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and landowners, to which she and Claude belonged. Above she had, uh, or she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses. This was interesting to me because it's kind of how she has put herself in the middle. She doesn't see herself as lowly, but she doesn't see herself as super high. Or the right. top of the food chain, because then that's haughty.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Which makes so, which is makes her sound even more uh, righteous. The fact that she yeah. is is uh, including enough fake humility to make it sound like she has a balanced view of herself.
0: Yeah. yeah, and this is how she sits and thinks, and this is how she perceives everything around her. That. That I mean, just the way she treats everyone except for the lady who she can tell is a little higher class than the rest of the people in the room, right? Um, And I find that, um, I mean, if we're talking political, if we're talking financially, a lot of people do that. I mean, including myself, where you know, if we're talking morally, it's like, well, I'm not good but I'm not as bad as some people, right? Right, You got your murderers, you got your thieves, and then, you know, I tell a lie or or I do things I'm not supposed to, but at least I'm not doing those things, right? Or at least I'm not those people. Right. Um, And so just resonating sadly with her yet
1: again. (laughs) Right. Well, and this is what she does to fall asleep at night. Like, what a bizarre she occupied herself at night naming the classes of people like what level of of just psychosis is yeah. she in privately while acting the mannerly uh decent southern woman on the outside where she's she's falling asleep naming the classes of people and at the end of that paragraph o'connor says by the Time she'd fallen asleep, all of the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head, and she would dream they were all crammed in together in a boxcar being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. Yeah. I mean, this is just disturbing. And yet, her exterior, and she, it's like a Pharisee, the, the exterior is filled with respectable, decent manners of propriety and, and, um, uh, and class consciousness and being an elegant woman. And yet on the inside, she has this private um, narrative that is just uh, damnable to put it, you know, true. Yeah, I mean,
0: things that if you were to write down, uh, you would not want anyone to find.
1: Right. And O'Connor goes there. She, she goes there. She opens up this woman's, Mind, for the reader.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. This is something that if my mind or, excuse me, my thoughts were ever projected, um, people would see these thoughts. Um, right, right. And we would no longer have friends or a job or family. Uh, <laughs> um, because we do have these where we put ourselves at the center of everything. A very solid concept. Right.
1: Right. Do you mind if we talk about any possibility of redemption for Mrs. Turpin? Just in the in the you few mean, minutes we have left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, so, do you have the? Do you have everything that rises must converge? That that copy of it. I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is on two hundred seven. There, I just want to read this because it's my favorite part of the whole story. Yeah, I think it's a good stopping point for us. Yeah, because uh, we've been talking about. How vile Mrs. Turpin is, but also how she is a mirror for our own spiritual condition mm-hmm. um, and And you wonder, like a woman like this, who is so bigoted and selfish and prideful and racist it, what hope is there for mm-hmm. someone like that right mm-hmm. and this is where this is where I love O'Connor because she has this girl who's reading this book. That is scowling at Mrs. Turpin the whole story, and just the book she's...
0: entitled "Human Development." By
1: the way, right? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what what is necessary for human development? Like, what that book is about to do. Yep. Um, so anyway, so so the and the girl's name is Grace Mary Grace, really which great. is with Catholic implications exactly. abounding, right? Um, but anyway, so on two hundred seven, um, Mary Grace has had it. And she throws this book at Mrs. Turpin right in the eye, which uh, is a symbolic, I think, place to be hit. You know, her vision, how she sees everybody needs to be destroyed. And so this book clocks her in the eyes and she falls over. And on 207, um, I'm, I'm gonna, I if you don't mind, I just want to read the passage yeah. here. Um, Mary Grace says something to Mrs. Turpin that just this is my favorite moment of the story because it it puts so clearly what mrs turpin needs to hear and yet it is some of the most unrefined language and so how o'connor makes grace um and the and the violence of grace sound to mrs turpin i i just love it so if you don't mind i'm gonna read it on uh on 207 right about the middle of the page it says so this is about claude he was doubled up in the corner on the floor pale as paper holding his leg she wanted to get up and go to him but she could not move instead her gaze was drawn slowly downward to the churning face on the floor which she could see over the doctor's shoulder the girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her they seemed a much lighter blue than before as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air. There's so much going on right now, but it's beautiful. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returned. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes. Which, by the way, she
0: had made a comment earlier about how this girl who was ugly, she had acne, and she was reading this book, and Missus Turpin was speaking to her mother and said that they had the same blue eyes, same face, but there was something different about the girls—how they seemed more cloudy, more sh- more um, shadowed—and so that's a callback to her previous point
1: about right. her eyes. Right, and and how Grace was ugly to her, and Grace was clouded; she couldn't see Grace. Yeah. Um, but now there was no doubt. Picking back up, there was no doubt in her mind. That the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. Something eternal going on. What you got to say to me, she asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure that her message had struck its target. That yeah, the go-, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. That is yeah. what that is what every sinner needs to hear about their own sin. It's just that yeah. it is from hell, it is ugly, and it needs yeah. to be sent back to hell by the violence of grace. And it's a sin that
0: you don't even realize.
1: Right. You don't see. You can't see. So your sight has to be adjusted violently in order to jolt you out of yourself. Yep. And So that, that moment is the turning point for Mrs. Turpin. So I think next time we can talk about the revelation that she does see now that her vision has been fixed by violence, which is so paradoxical, but... It's like, it's like Christ, the death that brings life, the, the humility that brings, um, elevation. It, it's, it's so beautiful. This, this statement from this girl go back to hell, um, jars Mrs. Turpin so badly that it alters her for the rest of the story.
0: Yeah. And this girl had been peering at her and looking at her and Mrs. Turpin has been ignoring it Yes, because she talked to her mother who is high status. You right. Know, she is ignoring the girl although she knows that she's looking at her. And there's this idea that that Grace is watching. <laughs> okay? Right. Right. Grace sees us. But yet we want to look away because we have our own agenda that we right. have to to continue with. Um, right. You know, we see that none of that pays off for you know Mrs. Turpin. I mean, Ultimately, it doesn't pay off for her, but um, Grace does get her point across in a very violent, um, right, way. Right, and again, it seems very art. I mean, art. It seems very odd and bizarre. I don't know why I just blurred those <laughs> words. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so when you're thinking about a Flannery O'Connor story, and you think about it being odd and bizarre. This is the thing. Like when this happened, it completely threw me off. And I had to go back and read it again because I'm like, wait a minute. Did that girl just literally jump over the table and throw a book at her? Yes. Um, and that's where it gets you. It pulls you in. And you're like, what is the matter with this girl? Um, right. And uh, Mrs. Turpin, uh, it wasn't even the book being thrown at her that threw her. It was the comment right. that she said. Right. Go back to hell, you warthog! Right. Um, so yeah, I think this is a good place to stop. That's kind of the the um, the plot point there that changes everything. So uh, we'll pick back up next week and um, see what
1: happens. Part two. To... Part two of Revelation.
0: Yeah, good stuff, Matt. It is it has been great. I have learned so much just listening to you talk uh, and us talking through this. So thank you for that. Um,
1: Thank you, man. This is awesome.
0: Yeah. I say, may we, um, this week, uh, until the next uh, episode, or I guess two weeks, um, pray that God reveals our sin to us too, uh, so that we can stray away from it and uh, cling to him instead of our own self. Amen. So have a good week we'll see you next week where we do part our next time next episode where we do part two thank you guys remember go to our um, Facebook page uh, stoutman um, and you can also go to our instagram stoutman podcast and uh, feel free to comment anything that you would um, like to uh, you know please be um, charitable and gracious but um, you know we'd love to hear from you so thank you guys have a great week